Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. It's a new year. It's a new decade. We've got Helen and Chris and Chris here. We're going to have a fresh attempt to make sense of the future of British politics, but specifically the future of the Labour Party. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just 19.99, and they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. For people who may be joining us for the first time, Helen is Helen Thompson, an expert in political economy, and the two Chris's, Chris Bickerson, who is an expert in European politics, among many other things, and Chris Brook, an expert in political theory, but also knows a lot about British politics and, am I allowed to say you know quite a lot about the history of the Labour Party? Nod. Good. So we're going to start with a subject which is, I think, a turn-off for a lot of people, so I kind of need to caveat this. When you talk about electoral reform or proportional representation, a lot of people yawn. Um, and it is a perennial thing, and it's a perennial issue for the Labour Party. There's a sort of tradition that when Labour loses two, three, four elections in a row, the question comes up, can they ever win again under first-past-the-post? And then you get the argument that you're having now within the Labour Party. Clive Lewis, the one candidate, and we will get on to people, personalities, sexism, everything else in a bit. Clive Lewis, the one candidate who's dropped out, was also the one candidate who had unabashedly said he felt that this was the time for Labour to embrace the idea of alliance politics, and that includes electoral reform. Keir Starmer, the favourite, has been, again, unequivocal in saying he is in the business of winning a majority at the next election. It's quite hard to see how Labour wins a majority at the next election. Chris Brooke, I'll start with you as the person who knows the history of this. I circulated for us all to read this interesting article that Tony Blair wrote in 1987 when this issue came up. And Blair flirted with electoral reform just before he became Prime Minister. But 10 years before that, he was very much against it. And some of his arguments seem to me still have resonance today. And one in particular, which is there's an assumption that if you did proportional representation for the people who want it on the Labour side, Labour would retain its dominant position as the alternative government, but could then form alliances with smaller parties to get it over the line and create an anti-Tory majority. The risk, particularly now, a long way on from 1987, is that when you look at what happens to centre-left parties under PR systems, they can collapse. I mean, you give people a real choice. They don't have the disciplining effect of first-past-the-post, which is, frankly, if you want an alternative government, this is the only one. And people really are free to choose across. There are big risks that way too. How do you see the balance? I think that's right. And what's also changed is that in the 1980s and the 1990s, the conversation about PR turned on the assumption that with PR, Labour and the Liberals in for some of those days, the Liberal SDP alliance could work together to form that anti-conservative majority. But that now looks like a breathtakingly naive assumption that when the Liberals finally had a sniff of power, it was through making a deal with the Conservative Party. We know the Democratic Unionists are willing to be bought off by the Conservative Party. Some people still have this, I think, very naive assumption that the Scottish National Party forms part of some kind of progressive bloc that is itching to form a progressive coalition. That seems to me a largely baseless assumption. So under certain circumstances, it's the case that the parliamentary arithmetic 
whether under a PR system or otherwise, might point to strong reasons for cooperation between uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party. But there are plenty of scenarios, and in 2010 we saw one of them, when the logic works the other way. So I think the points that you ascribed to Blair in 1987 still hold, but I think there are further reasons for being quite sceptical about why Labour might want to go down this route. And when you look at, so Labour got 40% of the vote in 2017, they got 32%, big fall last time, but 32%, a lot of centre-left social democratic parties in Europe would kill for 32% under PR systems. I think what Labour never knows is the extent to which its support is artificially high because of first past the post. I mean, it may be true on the Tory side too, if we had a genuine PR system. My instinct is that there is a core conservative vote which would hold up under PR to start with anyway. With Labour, I just think you don't know. And, and the one salutary thing that they have to look at is Scotland, where there is an alternative voting system in Scottish politics, which has helped to fragment plus a, another party, the SNP. But what if Labour's vote share in Scotland is an indicator of where they would go if the choice was wider in the UK? I mean, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it must be possible. It's possible. I think that the crucial thing, though, for Labour at the moment is, is that it's just a distraction. Because even if you ended up with a, a Labour Party that somehow got into power next time and then decided it was going to implement this, but as soon as you've proven that you can win still under first past the post, then you've got much reduced motive to try to change the electoral system once you're in power. But that's the problem with electoral reform. So Generally, the winners have no incentive. But the question then is, is, is like, well, what does it do to you in terms of trying to win power by moving into that position? Does it make you more competitive with the voters that you've got to try to win back? And really, if you look at it in the crudest terms here, in order for Labour to have any prospect of getting close to winning power next time, they've got to take votes off the SNP in Scotland and they've got to take votes off the Conservatives, particularly in the Midlands, the North West and Wales, because they're where the Labour's main targets are concentrated. So the question then is, is, well, does moving to reforming the electoral system help win any of those votes? And I can't see what the argument is that it would do. What if, if it was assumed that it's going to be very hard for Labour to form a majority government, so it will have to govern in partnership or coalition or informal alliance with other parties? And those other parties, although the SNP, it's complicated because they do very well under first-past-the-post, but the other parties would be very keen on electoral reform. So it's one of the things that creates the grounds for that possible governing alliance before it's actually come into effect. So there's the offer to the voters, but then there's also the offer to the politicians of the other parties. But what does it help offering the Liberal Democrats in order to win the seats that we're talking about Labour winning? Well, Gordon Brown came very close well, insofar as he came close at all to forming a government with the Liberal Democrats in 2010, it was one of the issues was who could offer them the most on electoral reform. In the end, he was actually outflanked. Labour hadn't collapsed in Scotland at that point, and Labour's electoral geography looked different than it does now. I mean, certainly, if there are coalition negotiations between Labour and the Liberal Democrats in the event of a future hung parliament, some kind of electoral reform would be on the table, pretty much regardless of what people said in their manifestos. Helen's point, which I think is right, is that even if we think winning a majority is beyond them, this isn't the route to Labour clawing back what they lost in 2019, barring a transformation of the attitudes of the people we take to be the swing voters. Chris, is there anything that Labour should or could learn from the experience of social democratic parties around Europe? So when Corbyn did so well in 2017, a lot of European parties looked at the British Labour Party as a model of some 
way forward, although none of them have our electoral system. But if you look at the other way, we've been aware for a long time that you've talked about the French centre-left Socialist Party and its complete collapse. Does Labour have to take that seriously as a possibility, especially if there were electoral reform? First past the post does keep Labour in place as the only alternative government. Yeah, towards the bottom end, I think it's a kind of safeguard, which other party systems around Europe don't have. And some parties on the left have have suffered. And the experience, certainly across Europe, is that it's definitely not some guarantee to help social democratic parties by having a more proportional system. I think the only lesson is that it's kind of neither here nor there. I mean, you have instances where parties seem to be doing well, but not particularly because of PR. Instances where parties are doing badly, but you also have the same electoral system. I mean, the Dutch system is very proportional, didn't do anything to save the fortunes of the Dutch Labour Party, which I think was in secular decline irrespective of the electoral system. It doesn't make sense, I think, to justify proportional representation as a strategy to power for Labour. There's a case to be made for PR against first past the post. But that's a case that has to be made for all parties, for all politicians, for all voters, or that it's just a better system. And you can argue that, and you can say, well, actually, no, first past the post is a better system. There is a trade-off. PR is more representative, but when parties govern, they have to make trade-offs with each other, and so it's much less transparent from a voter's perspective about what actually gets done. First past the post, if a party gets into power, it can do what it says it's going to do. It doesn't have to make these alliances and deals in a coalition. But it's much less representative. That's a general argument, but I just don't see how for Labour today it's anything other than, as Helen said, a distraction from the principal question. Irrespective of the electoral system, Labour has to work out what it is for as a party. And that, I think, is the pressing question. So the reason this comes up at this point, and it came up in the late 80s, early 90s, is so on the one hand, first past the post helps Labour potentially relative to other European systems and centre-left parties. On the other hand, if you look at the history of British politics, Labour almost never wins under first-past-the-post. So it comes up after a third defeat, a fourth defeat. And there's this sort of tension in the way people think about British politics. They look at election results and they see what is potentially, quote-unquote, an anti-Tory alliance. The Tories never get over 50%. So if you can somehow cobble together everyone else, and everyone else often sounds quite anti-Tory, although we discovered in 2010, sometimes it's an illusion you get a majority for something else. On the other hand, this looks like a very small-c conservative country because parties of the centre-right keep winning under our electoral system. And on the whole, when elections come around, people are often surprised by the fact that the voters are quite sanguine about being governed again by the Conservatives. Are we broadly conservative country or are we a broadly anti-conservative country and our electoral system doesn't reflect that? I know it's a big question, but people argue about this a lot. I mean, Blair's instinct is that we're a broadly conservative country, and so it's really hard for Labour to win, so you have to do a lot of moving to the centre. So I don't think we're a broadly conservative country, but I also think you frame the question by suggesting that, you know, we are where we were a quarter of a century ago, that Labour's lost for a third time, it's lost for a fourth time, and that's what creates the conditions in which we have this discussion. But I think... Structurally, it is quite different, which is that the traumatic defeat for Labour in the earlier cycle was 1992, when a lot of people in Labour thought they'd done everything they needed to do to win an election, and then the polls thought they were on the way to victory, and then they fell 
considerably short. And then in that summer of 1992, there was deep pessimism about the prospects for the Labour Party. That was all transformed in the autumn of 1992, when Michael Heseltine began the pit closure and Labour took an enormous opinion poll lead. And then after John Smith died, Tony Blair became leader and that that lead became astronomical and they won a landslide in 97. But around 1992, uh, there was deep pessimism that Labour could win. Nowadays, there's no reason to think that people aren't going to be willing in certain circumstances to vote Labour in England and Wales. The difficulty in terms of constructing a majority is Scotland because Labour has done very badly there now for three general elections in a row and nobody has a plausible strategy for how Labour can recover in Scotland. So I think structurally the situation is different so looking at Helen, I thought you were going to say, and then stuff happened. So in, in the autumn of 1992, what happened was we crashed out of the ERM, and that changed the dynamics of British politics completely. And that, I don't know if you want to call that an event, because Helen will also say that there were deep structural reasons behind that too. But stuff happens. I remember, I, so the Tories did, I do remember this, they did get above 50% in opinion polls in the summer of 1992. That thing that seems impossible for any party and John Major was riding high, and then it all came crashing down. It is. They don't really, in any sense, beyond a few polls, get back above... Well, Cameron gets back in 40% in some polls before the expenses scandal. But if you look at it as a sustained position, you've got to look to Theresa May for them to recover from the position that they got to in after Black Wednesday. And you think Black Wednesday was the thing? I think Black Wednesday was the thing because it destroys, the basically, the, the Conservatives' party's reputation with their own voters, I stress, for some kind of governing competence. And it exposes them to enormous divisions that have basically been repressed since Thatcher was pushed out of of office. But I think the other thing that we need to bear in mind is there is some continuity between 92 and 97. And I would say that lasts until just about through the 2005 election, though it's framed by then, which is there is a de facto anti-Tory tactical vote. And that is the reason why, despite the fact that in terms of proportion of the vote, that the Conservatives do very well in 1992, the majority comes down a long way. And indeed, by 97, as we know, the majority had been lost. And that then produces that same anti-Tory tactical voting alliance, produces those Liberal Democrat gains in 1997 that are sustained through. So although that there is a, a big electoral shock to the Conservatives, also it's beyond just an electoral shock to the Conservatives. And although I think that Tony Blair's leadership does make a difference to the Labour Party, some condition of the success of 97 is actually in place in 92. And that's where I think it is different. Than and one of, one of the things that lies behind what Clive Lewis was saying is the thought that what 2019 tested to destruction was tactical voting and informal alliances and so on. I mean, it was an election that was framed in the run-up that this is a chance for sophisticated tactical voting schemes, and they all flopped, all of them. I don't think anywhere did it make any difference, tactical voting. It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference on the to what Labour were trying to do from it, but it does make a difference to what the Conservatives were trying to do from it, because the, the, the tactical Party. alliance manifested itself as an anti-Corbyn vote because that was I think the strongest driver of what went on in this general election so the, the, in that sense Labour were the victims of, of tactical voting. Yeah because the one tactical not strategic but tactical thing that made a huge difference was Farage's decision to stand down in Conservative seats that was a tactical thing and it did make a big difference didn't it so yeah you're right tactical voting works 
against them. I wanted to come back to Scotland because it seems to me that I'm not convinced that Scotland is some sort of enduring impediment for the Labour Party. I mean, is it not the case that the Scottish question will have to in some way come to a head? And if that comes to a head by there being a second referendum, and if that second referendum is lost, then surely for Labour's prospects in Lost by the SNP. Yeah, lost by the SNP, then the question of how to govern Scotland and what goes on politically in Scotland has been transformed. You know, the SNP's function, if you like, in Scottish politics is presumably to push for independence. I think the case for a third referendum would be difficult to make. So if the question of independence is taken off the table, then Scotland opens up again politically for the Labour Party. If Scotland is independent, then the problem for the Labour Party disappears as well, because these 59 seats are are then taken out of the equation and English politics, if you like, or sort of the remainder of British politics is reorientated to a lower level of seats. So for Labour, I think they just have to, rather than sort of try and embrace a different electoral system, they have to, one, work out what they're for, and two, bide their time on Scotland. So I don't see how Scotland will always be lost to to Labour. So I agree that it's perfectly possible to imagine scenarios like the one you're envisaging. I don't think a second referendum loss would take independence off the table. I think the SNP are very good at keeping stirring the pot whether or not they get over the line. And I think we'd see a replay of the politics we've had over the last couple of years. My point wasn't that it's inconceivable to imagine a Labour revival in Scotland. It's more that no one in the Labour Party has any plausible strategy for bringing about that revival. I think if Labour win more seats in Scotland, it's more likely to be an artefact of four-party politics, that you know the way the vote splits has an enormous effect on the distribution of seats. What we saw in 2017 is that the Labour vote went up by minuscule amounts in Scotland, and half of the increase in the Labour vote in all of Scotland was in one seat. It was in Ian Murray's Edinburgh South, the only seat that they already held. So in a sense, those were all wasted votes. And nevertheless, they won a handful of seats, not because they were more popular, but because the SNP vote dipped across the country, and that left Labour in first place in a number of seats. Four-party politics can produce results like this, and it may very well be that if the SNP decline in popularity a bit, we'll see the Scottish seats split fairly comfortably four ways at the next election. But my point is more about Labour Party strategy, that I don't think any of the groups in the Scottish Labour Party have a serious analysis and a serious strategy and are able to say, you know, if the party follows our recommendations, we have good reasons for thinking we'll haul ourselves back in the political game in Scotland. The right-wing groups in the party tried it, the left-wing groups in the party tried it, both got nowhere. I'm not sure that the SNP would carry on with independence in the short term anyway if they were to lose another referendum if that referendum were to come but that doesn't mean that they would be finished as the dominant domestic party in Scotland devolution would persist Labour's sort of long-term problem in Scotland which in some sense existed before we get to 2014 is is that the party organisation went into extreme decay and it stopped producing the calibre of politicians that it produced in the past and those politicians it did produce of some calibre didn't involve themselves in Scottish politics they wanted to go off to Westminster so in some sense for Labour to compete again in Scotland it has to compete in Scottish politics as Scottish politics and at the moment it doesn't show any signs of being able to do that. One reason for Labour to have optimism about their prospects under this system first past the post is it does allow quite dramatic shifts of fortune so it's quite hard for a 
government with the majority that Johnson now has to be just swept out of office and replaced by another majority government. That almost never happens. But as various people have pointed out, when Cameron became Conservative leader, the Conservatives had fewer seats than the Labour Party has now, by a handful, but they were under 200. And five years later, he was Prime Minister, not at the head of a majority government, but well ahead of Labour. And he did it without Scotland. So the Conservative revival in Scotland did not happen in 2010. So you can do it without Scotland, and you can have these dramatic swings of fortune, particularly with parties and governments that have been in power for a while. It's at least possible. The other thing that if I was Labour would give me some hope, and this is a bit of a stretch, but Johnson won by running the Scott Morrison playbook. I mean, it's Australian politics has been dominating some tactical attitudes within the Conservative Party for a while now. And Scott Morrison at the moment shows the way in which governments can be undone by events. I mean, I don't think we're going to be swamped by bushfires, but things can happen. And that kind of regime can look very, very brittle very, very quickly if it is slow and leaden-footed in its response to events. And five years is a long time. So our system with that possibility and this kind of politics, which does seem to me to be fragile in the face of an inadequate response to serious events, that would give me hope if I was Labour. Because I think the comparison... You know, it's not an answer to what they stand for. It's just No, but I think it's also the comparison to the Conservatives is maybe a bit sort of misleading because the Labour vote is very concentrated in urban areas with high population numbers dominated by London, university towns. You then have a lot of constituencies that are much more sparsely populated. Labour needs to extend its vote beyond these urban conurbations into the rest of the country and win back some areas that it had before and also try and just broaden its vote. And first past the post, if you think about the absolute numbers of votes versus how the seats are distributed, I think that's where Labour really struggles. Whereas the Conservatives have more of a de facto ability to, to win some of those those seats. And it is this, as we're discovering, this basic demographic issue of many democracies, including ours, which is if your support skews to the young and the university educated, it's also skewing to people who are mobile. And people who are mobile congregate they congregate in certain parts of the country, university towns, cities, and so on. So under our system, you pile up these big majorities where the people your support moves to, but it means that the other side have their support distributed much more widely. One reason why I think pessimism on the Labour Party, and pessimism on the Corbynite left is very deep at the moment, but one reason I think pessimism isn't so uniformly distributed across the Labour Party as compared with 1992 is that in 1992... They did everything that the sensible commentators said, and they didn't win. In 2019, they learned the hard way what it is to fight a general election with a very unpopular leader. And the ground for optimism now is the hope that the next leader won't turn out to be as personally unpopular with key demographics, with swing voters, with voters in Labour heartlands, as Jeremy Corbyn was. And that, I think, is the grain of optimism people are holding on to in the current leadership election, that the politics of Brexit will be different in four or five years' time than they are now. We don't know how they'll be different, but they will be different. And so if people think it was Labour's Brexit policy that led them to come unstuck, that will be different. But also, in particular, people look at the candidates for the Labour leadership, and they don't tend to think that these look like candidates who will prove to be 
as much of a liability as Jeremy Corbyn clearly was. Now, it may very well be that the next Labour leader does badly, and then the conclusion is that there really is a secular decline of Labour, that the Democrat, it's the demographics that are driving it, that the electoral system, which has worked so well for them over the last quarter century, is now working very badly for them. But I think there are reasons for wanting to test that proposition, that if Labour goes into an election on pretty much the same kind of platform, Brexit aside, but with a less mammothly unpopular leader, they will claw back some of their losses. Maybe not enough, but they'll claw back some of them. Part of this turns on the way that we think about what's happened in the last election, as Chris has said. I mean, I would say that Corbyn was a sufficient condition for Labour losing the election, so you don't need anything else, actually, to explain it. But that doesn't mean that that is the only explanation about why Labour lost the election, because it could be that there were other sufficient conditions as well, that they're just not tested because you've got such an overriding... You can't really have an overriding sufficient condition, but the one that was to the fore of enough voters' minds to ensure that that was decisive. I mean, I suspect that it's possible, at least I'm not saying it's definite, it's possible that Brexit was actually a sufficient condition for Labour to lose the election as well. So two sufficient conditions. That's definitely worse than one sufficient condition. Both of which will be off the table next time. But I'm not sure that Brexit is off the table. I think that's what I was going to say. Because Brexit was revealing of something about Labour's attitude towards a set of voters who in the past have, not necessarily just the recent, very recent past, who have um, voted for it. And it revealed the deep demographic divide in what had been its coalition of the kind of demographic divide that you're talking about and whilst the actual contest over whether to accept the referendum result has now gone away it's not that the legacy of all that because in some sense it was such a deep bitter polarizing question in some sense as I've said before I think the country kind of went through an ordeal for three and a half years you can't just leave that behind it's going to have consequences going into future politics as well. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's a new year, but I'm going to do the thing that I used to do in the last year because it's Wednesday and I've just read Daniel Finkelstein's column in which he says that he thinks Keir Starmer risks falling into a trap because the Keir Starmer position, as far as we can tell on Brexit, is that he will continue to push for the closest possible alignment around single market and a customs union. And Finkelstein's argument is that that's potentially dangerous because it's a much weaker argument once we're out. When it's a proxy for trying to stay in, that's one thing. But once we're out, it's, it's alignment without actually any say in the rules that govern those institutions. And that Labour does still run big risks of putting itself on the wrong side of the people that it needs to win back, even though it's quite a technical argument. There is a sort of gut instinct about this. If this is about sovereignty and it is about forms of control, the Keir Starmer position, once it's no longer a stop Brexit from happening position and becomes a position about what the future relationship is, is potentially a hostage to fortune. Do you buy that? I think there is structural awkwardness, but I think it's a different kind of structural awkwardness, which is that 
Labour, in a sense, is placing a bet that Brexit will turn out badly. That's to say that the kind of people who've who swung to the Conservatives at the election will, in the not-too-distant future, come to regret their choice. Maybe not so much because of the fact of Brexit itself, but because of thoughts about how Brexit is going or how it's being handled. The Conservative Party is you know, ripe for a division on that kind of issue about where the, um, the Spartans and so on will start shouting at the, at the government that uh, there are going to be kinds of Brexit betrayal and so on. The politics are very volatile, and I think the Labour gamble is that if, you know, for example, car manufacturing firms withdraw from the country and there is some unemployment or there are economic difficulties in precisely the areas that swung to the Conservatives that aren't wiped out by extra government spending, then there'll be people who are kind of receptive to the idea that, you know, Brexit has been botched and a more cooperative, a greater degree of alignment with the European Union would have been a better way of managing the process. What's structurally awkward about that, and it's you know, it's a version of the dilemma that all oppositions face, is that you kind of want things to go economically badly so that your political fortunes will go well, but you mustn't ever be seen to be talking down the economy and so on. That's a general dilemma of opposition politics in democratic countries, and I think we're going to see an acute version of it. But I think that's right, that voters aren't going to be following the technical details. They've never really been following the technical details of Brexit. So it's not a a trouble-free pathway for Keir Starmer to follow, but it doesn't seem to me obviously flawed. So we don't know if it's going to be Keir Starmer, and we'll maybe come on to the question about whether they can pick the one man in a field of one man, four women. One of the demographics we talk about, they've got to win back the people who they lost. One of the demographics that really was stark in the election is based on age. So there is that figure, I mean, it more or less reverses, 18 to 24, I think. It's roughly this, but it's kind of 57% voted Labour, 17% voted Conservative, and over 65, it's exactly the reverse. So it's kind of 58% voted Conservative, 18% voted Labour. So 18% of people over 65 voted Labour. So in these parts of the country where young people and university graduates have left... And there is a lot of evidence that they have left those those red wall seats and moved, uh, leaving a, a skewed demographic in those seats. And then if you can't win among pensioners, basically, you've got a real problem. And I've been surprised to this point that people don't want to talk about it. Maybe it's a bit awkward. I'm not sure. But if I was the Labour Party, I would focus group all the candidates with panels of people over the age of 65. I mean, we know Corbyn was a massive turnoff despite also being over 65, with that demographic. I don't know which of these candidates. I don't know if Keir Starmer is appealing, I mean, or can speak the language that resonates with that group. But if there is a group that they have to win, not all of them back, but some of them back, and this is a big shift over 25 years. It would not have been true 25 years ago that you would have that massive generational imbalance. Yvette Cooper raised this issue. She said it's about communicating with older voters, but she's not standing. Is Keir Starmer? I don't know. I don't know why I think maybe, partly because you occasionally hear older people saying they quite like him <laughs> in my uh, minimal uh, focus group of my parents and one or two others who really aren't the people they need to win back. I think the deeper question goes back to a question that you raised earlier, actually, which is is like whether Britain is a, a small-c conservative country. I think that's a, a complex question once you start trying to ask it about Britain as opposed to the composite parts of Britain. But okay, is England a small yeah, city? I would, I think, yes, probably on balance. And that I think that the problems with 
Labour's got with older voters are part of that broader problem rather than just necessarily an age demographic problem. And I think it's quite difficult to see how Labour wins again without trying to find some common ground with small C, some small C Conservative voters. Obviously it's not going to be all because quite a lot of them are still going to vote for the Conservative Party. But I think to write off pretty much all small C Conservative voters, which is what the Labour Party has moved towards doing, not entirely because it's still retained some older Labour voters and it's not like all the seats in the North went tumbling um, down. But to construct an appeal that really relies entirely on past loyalty for small C Conservative voters, for all small C Conservative voters, there is just no way back to power that goes down that path. Now, the question then is, is, well, what kind of common ground can you find that doesn't make such compromises that there's a whole set of the younger voters who say, we're not having anything to do with this party and we're off to the Greens? That's the crucial question that, that they have to face because attempting to find no common ground whatsoever, I think, leaves Labour in the position which it is now. But moving too far to find common ground means that they lose part of the coalition, and a significant part of the coalition that they now have. Yeah, I'm just trying to work out what we think we mean by the small C Conservative. So I suppose it may be that part of it is to do with the radicalism of Labour's programme, its economic programme particularly. Why would that put off more than anyone else older voters? I mean, if you've kind of gone through a decade of the 1970s and think that they're wanting to bring all of this back, then you may sort of instinctively recoil from it, which wouldn't be the case for younger voters. Is it the fact that the Labour Party's kind of version of socialism has been sort of imbued with identity politics and that just doesn't compute or doesn't really sort of figure for older voters who just see it as a distraction or don't really get it? Maybe that's another thing. There is also climate. There's a lot of evidence that the Green New Deal really exacerbates this generational divide, deeply appealing to younger voters. Quite a turn-off for older voters. It's true in the States as well. And that could be a range of these things. It could be because it sounds like it's bound up with identity issues when it's not. I guess, I mean, all parties sort of paid more than just lip service to climate change this time round, but the the Labour vote amongst over 65 was particularly low. And that was one of the lessons from Australia, and I keep going back to Australia, but that did come up in Scott Morrison's win. It did turn out that that is an issue that can become a wedge issue on generational as well as geographical grounds. Going back to the question Helen was discussing a moment ago of, is England a conservative country? When we're dealing with this kind of question, I think we we can't ignore questions of home ownership. I mean, earlier I was saying that I don't think the United Kingdom, I don't think Britain is a naturally conservative country you know, across the board. But it's certainly the case that people who own their own homes are much more likely to vote conservative. And that was obviously part of the conservative politics of the 1980s of trying to extend home ownerships and turn people from being Labour voters into being conservative voters. That's still the case. And this is a great deal, I think, of what's driving the division between generations. It's not just that. There are other things too. But we live in a world where an awful lot of older voters do own their homes and very, very few younger voters do. And that's a, a constant in British politics now, that people who rent are much more likely to vote for left parties. The worry, as I think Helen says, is if you have this focus group of older voters, you'll get a lot of people telling Labour they have to restrict immigration and so on. And for the Labour Party to 
take that very seriously would prompt a crisis in the party because there's been such a backlash against, um, you know, when Ed Miliband released his immigration controls mug that caused a great rumpus in the Labour Party. Lisa Nandy in the current election isn't coming out as an anti-migration candidate, although it's or yet, or we don't quite know, but it's very striking that the Labour MPs who make the loudest noises about restricting migration have lined up to support her. And great chunks of the party are very suspicious of this move, this particular turn to try to win back socially conservative voters by promising restrictions on immigration, both, I think, for ethical and economic reasons. So I think that would be the biggest block in the way of, as it were, holding the focus group that you've described, that people wouldn't want to go there because they think that would be the result. So actually, the kind of focus group I had in mind was more the kind of one where you ask people for their immediate, within two seconds response to what the candidates almost with the sound turned down. You know, there is a lot of evidence that you can glean a lot from that. And I just have no idea with that group of voters, how they respond that Corbyn was a turn off on that measure too. two seconds with the sound turned down. People who didn't like him still didn't like him, or they really didn't like him. I mean, maybe this is happening, I don't know. I mean, the age thing is often so complicated. There are so many sufficient conditions. There are also so many things that might be proxies for something else. Age might be a proxy for home ownership. It might be a proxy for educational experience, because if you're older, you're much more likely to own your own home, and you're much less likely to have been to university and these things. So it's, it's a messy picture. I've got two more questions about leadership and about the people. So one is about the Liberal Democrats, then we'll come back to Labour. So if you look at the election result, the Tory vote didn't go up much. Theresa May did really well in 2017. People forget that. And then Johnson did a little bit better, added maybe a few hundred thousand votes. The big shift was on the Labour side and the Lib Dems, who had a catastrophic election, as we talked about last year, nonetheless, increased their vote share by about 50%, went from under 8% to nearly 12%. And that shift was really decisive. And Labour went down from 40% to sort of 32%. And no one's talking about who's going to be leader of the Liberal Democrats, but that's coming up too. And it might matter. If you think of British politics as not swinging from Labour to Conservative and these voters who swing, but these two groups, and it's the group that can hold its vote together that wins, and it's the group that either fractures or doesn't turn out that loses. And Johnson held his side together, and Corbyn didn't hold his side together. And enough of them defected to the Lib Dems. Now, the Lib Dems could pick a leader. You know, we've talked in the past about the risk to the Conservatives. That There are a lot of Conservatives who, when things go wrong, even Conservative Brexiteers, who flip Lib Dem just to show the world that they're not happy. It uh, didn't happen last time, but it could happen. And it does matter a bit. I mean, an Ed Davey Liberal Democratic Party is probably quite different from a Leila Moran Liberal Democratic Party. But no one's talking about this. It's sort of the Lib Dems are irrelevant now. But they decided the last election. They called it. <laughs> the election happened because of the Lib Dems and the Conservatives won because of the Lib Dems in part. Well, they could have. I'm not sure that they did. I'm exaggerating. Because the SNP was sufficient yeah. for, for Johnson to get his... Another sufficiency. <laughs> um, get his election. The question is, who did the Lib Dems pull votes from? will decide under this system future I, politics. I'm not sure they did swing the election in quite the way you suggest. Um, what we're seeing is this radical mismatch between the vote share they get and the number of seats they get. And so what's striking this time is their vote went up, but they, they couldn't even hold on to the same number of seats that they had before. But I think if you look at the seats that mattered in this election, they're the seats in the North that traditionally have had a very, and certainly in the last election cycle, have had very low 
Liberal Democrat votes. These are two-party seats where it's whether people vote Labour or Conservative that matters. Or Brexit party. And what we're seeing is, you know, the Liberals were picking up votes in, you know, think of those seats like Dominic Raab's seat in Isher and Walton, or at the moment of maximum Liberal Democrat optimism, they thought they would could challenge Michael Gove in his seat in Surrey Heath. There are these big chunks of the South where the Liberal Democrats were improving their vote share significantly. But those were seats which were never going to affect the result concerning the Labour Party. Now, sure, you can find seats in the North where you know, the number of people who voted Liberal is greater than the size of the Conservative majority over Labour. But it's not a large number. And had there not been Liberal Democrat candidates there, people who didn't want to vote Labour would have not voted or found other things to do. So I don't think it's the case that the Liberal Democrats were the kind of spoiler party who denied Jeremy Corbyn the majority he might otherwise have won. I think, as Helen said, the electorate was not going to give Corbyn an election victory this time round. And it's not especially significant, looked at in those terms, that it was the Liberals who were putting on vote share rather than anybody else. Yeah, I think you're right. But it's still true that next time they go up a bit more and the South, these seats in the South, it does become significant again. I mean, that thing that a lot of Conservatives feared might happen and didn't happen, which is their vulnerability in the South of England to a Liberal Democrat revival. If you look at, say, what space are the Liberal Democrats now in, they're in a Liberal critique of the Tories. And I mean by that in a historical sense of the tensions within the Conservative party between its economically liberal wing and its Tory wing. So if you looked at it in terms of sort of its founding in some sense as a, as a modern party, the Disraeli side is much stronger than the Peel side. The Liberals then become, which is obviously what happened to the Peelites from the Conservative Party after the repeal of the Corn Laws, they move into the, into the Liberal position and try to take disaffected voters in the South from the Conservatives away from them. And in that sense, they're not so relevant to the Labour competition. Labour's competition is now with the Greens, because if you look at what happens, say, in the in the German system, when you have a, a real crisis of the centre-left party, those voters have shifted to the, to the Green Party. And the Greens also put on 50% of vote share in the 2019 election, and they went from one seat to one seat, and they went from 2% to 3%. But you go from 3% to 4.5% next time, and it does make a big difference, and on and on. Last question, that one that I posed, you can give a quick answer. Can the Labour Party really spend two months taking five people around the country, four women and one man? And he's also, so there's been this thing, is he the basis for Mark Darcy and Bridget Jones' diary? It turns out he isn't, probably. It's just, you know, whatever. But he's quite a... Was Al Gore the inspiration for love story? Yes, <laughs> these, these questions recur. They do. Uh, but he's quite a mansplainy man. He's quite an annoying man for people. I say this as an annoying man, you know, for people who find that kind of thing. And they're going to be debating. I mean, Keir Starmer, he has lots of qualities and strengths. But I think for that issue, the next two months are a real problem for him. It's not that he's a North London lawyer. It's that he's a explainy bloke. Assuming that the YouGov poll that was done recently is not a rogue poll, and, you know, one in 20 polls is, but YouGov have a good track record at polling the members of political parties. They've got every Labour leader's election right since they've been doing it. Assuming that poll is right, then the election is Starmer's to lose. The question will be, does he come radically unstuck in hustings and in 
media performances and so on over the next kind of month because one of his rivals kind of runs away with it and just chose to be much more persuasive when they're confronted with ordinary members of the public, ordinary members of the Labour Party. It's hard to see who that person is. Rebecca Long-Bailey has a considerable advantages by the support of momentum and groups like that, but she isn't charismatic and the kind of fluent media performer who's likely to upstage Starmer dramatically. Harder to see Jess Phillips, Felisa Nandy playing that role. So, sure, some people don't like Keir Starmer. Sometimes it's for personal reasons, sometimes it's for factional reasons. I do think the way the race is going at the moment, it's his to lose. Well, you've skirted the question that I was asking. I think that the question is, is what did the Labour Party do if Keir Starmer wins? What constraints does that put on them? And I think that it means that they do have to retreat from some of the, let's call it, identity politics language that, that has been a, a more significant part, perhaps, of the positions that they've been taking over the last... I'm not entirely sure how long I'm going to say, maybe five years or so than, than in the past. Because if you come over, and there is a risk, I think, that Labour has done this as lecturing about certain subjects like identity politics, and then confronted with this choice, you choose the man, then you lose some high ground that you've previously been standing upon. It's the way that they then talk about these kinds of issues if they themselves end up producing another male leader that's the question for them because whether the Labour Party members are constrained by the issue I'm kind of tend to agree a bit more with Chris because it's not clear which of the other four candidates at the moment anyway can really make an effective challenge to him with the possible exception of Lisa Nandy, given her start. But even then, I think she's going to run into a great deal of difficulty from the the numbers of people, of the members, who simply will be sceptical, not more than sceptical, very suspicious about her over immigration. So if you end up with Keir Starmer, you then have to sort of deal with an hypocrisy issue. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And it will, and it will have to factor into the way in which Labour deal with other issues. So I think what Helen said is right about Keir Starmer, but I think those problems may fast forward themselves to before the decision is made about the leadership, which is to say that it could become, in the course of the leadership campaign, a totemic issue. Uh, and in which case, I think the Labour Party is so invested in identity politics that I find it hard to imagine that it could circumvent that. And that would, I think, be a real problem for Starmer. But it could also be that it somehow doesn't emerge as an issue because other issues just dominate too much and it's never really picked up by anybody that much in which case I think he's probably you know the most likely person and Chris is right it's sort of four against one makes it look like it's a real problem but it's not like the four can beat the one one of the four has to come through and then it becomes one against one which would have to happen for Starmer to lose and I tend to agree with Helen I think Lisa Nandy is a surprisingly strong candidate but this is still the electorate that elected Jeremy Corbyn and that's a big shift to make in a few months you have to look at the um, that poll that came out, I think it was either just before the election campaign or during it, about the attitudes of Labour members towards a, a set of issues. And if you think about Lisa Nandy as the most little-c Conservative of the candidates, the Labour members are miles away from being little-c Conservative. So in that sense, it's difficult to see how she wins. Yeah, weirdly, Clive Lewis was the one who was channelling a lot of the attitudes in that poll, and he's no longer in it. As always, you'll find a lot more detail about some of the things we've been talking about today, including that Tony Blair article from 1987, on our show notes. 
We've got an extra episode coming out this weekend. It's me in conversation with Azim Azar, who's the host of the Exponential View podcast, a really excellent podcast thinking about one of the things we like to talk about here, which is the relationship between technology and politics. Next week, we plan to be talking about the politics of the Middle East. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Do you want to say um, something? I started watching The Messiah, oh, and uh, it's this new Netflix thing with a, a prophet. People think that he's Christ returned. This is literally what happened to my friend Raj, who um, uh, about five, seven, eight years ago, so a group of lunatics decided he was the Messiah, um, and it made his life extremely difficult for a bit. Um, it would, yeah. So he got a, he what, got a, did, what did he do to encourage this? To be so and... He wrote books about the inequities of the world, food system, and was generally a sort of anti-globalisation. But there was this period where Raj's friends and family found it hilarious, and actually it was like, very scary did for his mother um, say he's Raj not the Messiah, and he's and just a very naughty boy. boy. They sent him the T-shirt. That would be, it would yeah. always be worth it, Chris. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Chris, could you um, tell us about the time you were the second coming? <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.